Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder, Malcolm Keating, and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is Blaine Neufeld. Blaine is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. His research is centrally in political philosophy, with an emphasis on political liberalism and public reason. His new book has just been published with Routledge. It's titled Public Reason and Political Autonomy, Realizing the Ideal of a Civic People. Now, according to a familiar picture, a democracy is a free society of self-governing equals. This means that citizens have a duty to participate in the processes of democratic governance. Moreover, it's often held that their participation should be aimed at acknowledging their fellow citizens' status as democratic equals. Now, on a dominant interpretation of this idea, this acknowledgement comes by way of how citizens conduct themselves in political decision-making contexts, including especially contexts of political reasoning, disagreement, and debate. Now, this raises the issue of the kinds of reasons that one might bring to public political discourse. On a view associated with John Rawls, theorists of liberal democracy need to distinguish between properly public reasons, that is, the kinds of reasons that are appropriate for public decision-making contexts, and reasons that might be morally weighty, but nonetheless are not appropriate for public decision-making. Now, of course, that distinction is fraught. In Public Reason and Political Autonomy, Blaine Neufeld defends a novel view of the nature and role of public reason in a democratic society. Now, as usual, there is a lot to talk about, but we'll begin, as we usually do, with our guest, the author. Hello, Blaine. Hi, Bob. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? Oh, hanging in. You know, it's the the end of a of an academic year, so things are always a little bit hectic. <laughs> so, you know, um, we usually begin these uh, interviews uh, with a little bit about the author. Um, you know, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. Uh, I grew up in uh, London, Ontario, and I went to the University of Toronto for my undergraduate degree, and there I studied political science. And I took some political theory courses, but they tended to be of a more history of political thought in nature. So courses on Plato, Aristotle, Locke, and so forth. Um, And I thought I was interested more in the international relations side of political science. Um, But I I, I was also, you know, I I liked political theory. And then I I went to uh, Oxford for MPhil in politics. And there um, things really changed for me. I took um, seminars with uh, uh, Jerry Cohen and David Miller. I attended lectures with, you know, given by Ronald Dworkin. And I kind of was exposed to analytical political philosophy um, for the first time. And I thought, well, this is really, you know, this is what I want to do. <laughs> I really enjoyed um, uh, uh, interacting with those philosophers and uh, and their style of doing uh, political philosophy. Um so after I finished my MPhil, I guess there was a, a few years, um, a bit of a gap there. But then I eventually, I, uh, eventually got into the PhD program in philosophy so uh, at the University of Michigan. And there I studied with uh, Liz Anderson and Stephen Darwall. And um, I actually began my dissertation there, uh, aiming to criticize and reject uh, Rawlsian political liberalism. Uh, Because I thought at the time there there were serious problems with it. 
Um, so, but I thought, well, at least what I should do is construct the strongest case possible uh, for the political liberal if I'm going to criticize it. You know, that's what you want to do in, in philosophy. You don't want to attack a, a, this straw man or a caricature of the view. You want the strongest view you can. And by the time I finished constructing what I took to be the strongest view of it, I thought, oh, this is right. (laughs) (laughs) So I kind of argued myself into a position I uh, previously had been uh, opposed to. Um, So after I finished my dissertation, I kind of wandered the world for a while. Um, I spent three years at uh, Stanford in the Introduction to the Humanities program, and then uh, three years at Trinity College Dublin, before eventually getting a, a, a tenure-track job at the uh, University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee in 2008. And uh, I guess I've been teaching there ever since, um, including being chair for three years. Uh, yeah, um, which I finished um, just before my, my sabbatical. And uh, half, half that term um, overlapped with the pandemic, which made it even more um, agonizing than, than normal. Um, so yeah, so that's sort of my uh, uh, intellectual journey um, so far. That's wonderful. You know, I was I was chair of my department for nearly a decade and got out just <laughs> just as just as the pandemic was, uh, you know, in twenty twenty. Uh, so you know, the, the uh, academic year nineteen and twenty. So uh, you know, I feel like I was lucky to have not had to, um, you know. Uh, manage a department that was struggling to learn what Zoom was and find a, you know, connect a uh, a web camera and everything. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, 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 I feel for whatever you, you had to endure uh, as part of that process. Um, so um, why don't we talk about the book? Um, and you know, I, as political philosophers, we we tend to um, think, with some justification, I would say that uh, everyone knows what we mean by political liberalism and Rawlsian, late Rawlsian liberal ideas. Um, but maybe not every uh, listener to the podcast in this particular episode of it uh, will know. Um, uh, what those terms mean, and there, there are more technical meanings within contemporary political philosophy. So why don't we begin where the book actually begins, with the background, right? With the background of what we uh, in in the field call political liberalism, which is contrast with comprehensive or sometimes perfectionist liberalism. Now, it's always struck me that um, no matter what one might think of Rawls's positive uh theses in political philosophy, um, it's sort of hard to not admire, right, the framework that gets devised, um, especially in the later work, uh, for stating uh, a core justificatory problem for liberalism. So um, can you just sort of set up the, the broad problematic that political liberalism is in part the attempt to diagnose and respond to? Yeah, sure. So I'll uh, I'll do it by way of um, talking a bit about uh, why Rawls um, felt the need to become what he called the political liberal and what that means. So in in a, a, a widely read book uh, from 1971, a theory of justice, uh, Rawls formulates and defends an egalitarian liberal conception of justice, which um, is now known as justice as fairness. And I don't, I, I mean, I could get into the content of that conception later if, if, if it's helpful, but broadly speaking, it's a liberal conception that, you know, tries to secure equal individual rights for all citizens, but it's also egalitarian and it tries to do, secure a high degree of um, uh, economic and political equality among citizens. Um, so uh, part of this defense of this conception of justice, justice as fairness in, in that book um, was thinking about uh, whether a society that realized um, justice would be stable over time. And uh, this is important, uh, Rawls thinks, uh, because political justice should not be self-defeating or fragile in nature. That is, if you actually manage to achieve it in society, you don't want it to only last a generation or, or to fall apart. Um, you want, ju- you know, justice has a kind of uh, practical function that it should uh, structure society so that it can 
be a framework that for ongoing social cooperation across generations, that it has a kind of robustness, uh, institutional robustness to it. Uh, moreover, it's not, not just any kind of stability that um, Rawls was concerned with. Um, so you can imagine realizing a stable society um, through deception, right? Through something like Plato's noble law, where you don't, where people, most people don't know the truth, but you achieve stability that way. Or you can have a stable society through um, intimidation and fear of death, you know, sort of Hobbes's Leviathan picture. But for Rawls, he thought, you know, like those those kinds of stability aren't the kind that are compatible with his conception of justice, which is, you know, involves free and equal citizens. So you want a, a certain kind of stability. Um, and Rawls thought he could get um, a just society that was stable, um, and it'd be stable in the right way, because it would depend on the free support of, of its citizens. But its citizens would freely endorse um, the institutions of their, what he calls their basic structure, their main political and economic institutions. And they would do so because in, in, a, in a fully just society, they would enjoy um, what, what can be known as full, full autonomy. And um, autonomy, uh, self-government, um, you know, that's what the word means, um, has, uh, in, at least in the theory of justice, has at least two, two elements. And um, one is a kind of institutional element, that is, you want these, the, the institutions in place that enable uh, citizens to participate in, in politics as equals, so they have the rights and resources to take part in political decision-making. But it also has this uh, justificatory element um, that citizens are, are fully autonomous, Rawls thought, and this is kind of a, an element that's consistent throughout his thinking, when institutions are justified in ways that they accept, um, uh, that they're not alien to them. Um, and, and in the theory of justice, Rawls thought that all citizens could endorse the, the principles of justice as fairness, they would endorse it, uh, those principles, and hence they would have uh, justificatory autonomy as well as institutional autonomy. Now, they, Rawls thought that um, they would have justific justificatory autonomy uh, because um, citizens would all endorse the principles of justice and fairness. And, they, and, and the reason he thought they would endorse them is because these principles, uh, I mean, the story is quite complicated, but very but simplifying somewhat, the, the, the citizens would endorse them because those principles would express their uh, deepest interests as, um, a, that is, their underlying nature as free, self-determining, rational agents. That is, the principles would best capture the idea that, that, that they're the essence of personhood is that of rational self-direction, uh, independent of unchosen empirical uh, contingencies. And I won't get into the details of, um, of what that story involves, but we can see, I mean, just based on that description, it's a pretty Kantian view. And um, I mean, if, if people are uh, read, uh, listeners are interested, I mean, there's an excellent discussion of this um, view uh, uh, of the Rawls's account of, of stability in, in, in a theory of justice by Paul Weithman in his book uh, Why Political Liberalism, which I draw a lot on, I learned a lot from. Uh, so, so why is this a problem? Well, uh, Rawls eventually came to think that the free the, the free institutions of a of a just society would um, actually prevent everyone from agreeing on this kind of robustly Kantian view of their fundamental interests. That is, a, um, a liberal society would be one in which citizens invariably would disagree over certain fundamental metaphysical and moral questions. Um, citizens would adopt different worldviews, uh, what he calls um, comprehensive doctrines. Some citizens might you know, really be taken with this Kantian picture and, and, and think that's the way to go. But others, through the free exercise of their reason, might uh, adopt different views. Um, they might, uh, you know, have a utilitarian um, view about um, morality and, and personhood, or some might adopt religious views. Um, they might be Buddhists or uh, Christians, uh, and they would have a very different, they might, and, and from those alternative worldviews, this, this claim that our essential nature involves this rational self-determination is might, might not uh, make sense or might not be one that they, they um, think is actually fundamental. So, and more, what's important for, 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 um, to understand political liberalism is that these disagreements are not simply the result or not always the result of say false beliefs or poor reasoning, right? Uh, I mean, it might be in many cases. I mean, people have all kinds of you know, crazy beliefs, 
false beliefs. But, but even people reasoning as well as human beings can be expected to reason uh, will um, inevitably uh, come to, uh, or at least this is the claim of political liberalism, will inevitably come to endorse different comprehensive doctrines. Like this is a kind of a built-in feature of the limitations of human reason or the nature of human reasoning. And um, uh, Rawls argued that um, this that this this kind of plur- this reasonable pluralism that is the kind of pluralism that would be the result of even conscientious, careful reflection on on moral and metaphysical questions uh, could only be eliminated by political oppression, right? Um, and so, any liberal theory has to accommodate what he calls the fact of of reasonable pluralism. And political liberalism is, is essentially this attempt to do so, right? So, so how can how how can we have a society that is stable in the right way, that is stable because through um, uh, citizens' political agency, through their political autonomy, uh, without pre- but 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 when that allows for the the respect for um, disagreement over which comprehensive doctrine, if any if any is, is true. And so this is um, where public reasoning comes in. So according to Rawlsian public political liberalism, um, if we justify fundamental political questions by means of public reasons, then then the the, uh, the basic structure of society will be justifiable to all citizens, despite the fact they have these, you know, uh, deeper um, disagreements about the nature of morality or whether God exists and so forth. Um, and public reasons have this kind of... Um, freestanding nature. They appeal to ideas of citizens as free and equal and society as a fair system of social cooperation. And the claim that political liberals make is that, well, these are, 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 are political ideas. They're normative ideas. They're, I mean, um, but they're nonetheless um, ideas that can be endorsed by citizens who adhere to a wide range of different religious and, and uh, moral and, uh, and uh, uh, other kinds of doctrines. So you get, you still have institutional autonomy. Citizens are free and equal citizens. They uh, they can participate in the political decision-making processes of their society. But they also enjoy kind of justificatory autonomy because if we justify these decisions in terms of public reasons, those are going to be reasons that are going to be acceptable to all citizens, at least all reasonable citizens, despite the fact that some citizens will be Buddhists, others will be atheist Kantians, you know, uh, uh, others uh, will be Catholics and, and, and so forth. Right. Can I can I ask a, a, just a quick sort of clarifying question? Um, because uh, I take it that um, it's important uh, for the the kind of Rawlsian story that public reasons aren't always um, uh, to call you know to articulate a reason publicly. Um, uh, or to articulate a reason within the bounds of, of, of publicity. Um, it's, you know, a public reason isn't always a conclusive reason, right? Public reasons can be strong or weak or, <laughs> or defeated. Is that right? That's correct. Yes, totally. Um, yeah, so you, you could have, it could be a political issue and there might be multiple public reasons uh, with respect to it. Some, some might be stronger than others and they can be in conflict with each other. So I don't mean to suggest that, uh, you know, by means of public reasoning, we, uh, citizens will arrive at a, you know, unique solutions to every political question. Um, and in fact, there might be, um, like, even if, even if citizens share the same political conception of justice, there might be disagreements about how best to interpret it or how best to realize it um, in terms of policy. So even um, uh, citizens who all say share you are equally committed to um, Rawls' own conception of justice, um, justice as fairness, they might disagree about, well, what kinds of institutions would best realize that conception, right? So, you know, in the literature today, there's debates over um, alternatives to um, capitalism, such as property-owning democracy, which is a, a kind of um, private property-owning regime, but it relies on a high level of equality um, through private ownership. And then there's people who think, well, you need some form of liberal or democratic socialism in order to realize Rawls's principles. And so you can have those kinds of disagreements. Um, but even, and then, but on top of that, you might have people who endorse somewhat different um, political, reasonable political conceptions of justice, right? Um, and they, 
They, they can be these different conceptions of justice are freestanding. Like they appeal to the ideals of free and equal citizens. They don't presuppose the truth of any comprehensive doctrine and so forth. Um, but they, but they might differ somewhat. Um, I mean, Rawls always thought that his conception was the most reasonable one. And, and, uh, uh, I, I guess I kind of agree with him on that. Um, but, but that's compatible with recognizing that there are other reasonable conceptions of justice that also gives citizens public reasoning reasons. Uh, but the important thing is that is for, for the purposes of, of justification is that these justifications are, um, appeal to, um, other people in their capacity as free and equal citizens, and they don't presuppose the truth of, say, utilitarianism, right, or um, uh, a particular religious view. Right. So would it be right to say that um, the later Rawlsian's interest in public reason uh, is ultimately an interest in establishing a kind of framework for political discussion and disagreement in decision-making contexts among people understood as free and equal citizens, given the fact that we can't count on them sharing uh, fundamental metaphysical, uh, theological, or even normative in some broad sense um, starting points. Does that sound right? I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> That's exactly so right. it's a framework. Yeah. It's not a uh, it's a framework for discussion and debate, uh, not a um, uh, not a pipeline for um, finding the right answers to important political questions. Yeah, that's, I think that's right. It, exactly right. Um, but, but, but I, I, I do think it filters out certain views, obviously. Right. So a, a view, um, uh, that, I mean, a, a classical utilitarian view that can only be justified, you know, on utilitarian grounds is not, you know, well, you can't, uh, that you can't formulate, if you, if you can't formulate a public reason justification for the policies, if you have to appeal to comprehensive utilitarian reasons, then, then, that's not um, going to be something um, that can be um, that that fits within the framework. So it's going to it's going to filter out options, but it won't it won't by itself uniquely determine certain outcomes. Good, right? So just a, so the utilitarian who offers as a justification for some particular policy, um, the greatest happiness principle says it. Um, is failing at public reasoning. Is that right? Yes. If that's all, the, if he stops, I mean, if he stops there. Yes, exactly. Yeah. If, if that's all the, if all, that's all the, that particular citizen or public official can say, then yes, that's, um, violates what Rawls calls the duty of civility because that person is giving a justification for, um, a, a, a law, say, say they're defending physician assisted suicide, um, on utilitarian grounds. And that's the only justification they can give. Then they're they're insisting on a kind of a deciding a, a very important political question um, on grounds that other citizens simply cannot accept for right? citizens who don't agree with the utilitarian doctrine. Now, if that same citizen also said, "Well, well but here's also a public reason argument um, for this for why physician say physician assisted suicide should be permitted in certain cases that appeals to um, that re- that rests on public reasons." Like I say, it appeals to the the uh, interest that citizens have in controlling their lives. Um, then, then that then that's fine. So you can give both. I mean, you could you could say here's both the utilitarian justification for this law that I or this p- political proposal that I think should become law, and here's a public reason justification. Um, that that that's perfectly okay um, as long as there's a. So as a non-utilitarian, I might say, well, it's great that you have your utilitarian justification, but what reasons do I have for thinking that your your proposed law is one that, that I should, you know, um, take seriously? And then if you can give me a public reason justification, then I say, okay, okay, that's a reason to at least take it seriously. Maybe I don't find it decisive, um, but but at least you're you're appealing to considerations that um, are ones I can I can weigh. Like I I the the, the that that. Are, are, are things that I can take seriously as a, in my capacity as a, as a fellow citizen. Good. Can I ask one, one other just question about the nuts and bolts of this before we get into the, the, um, uh, the political autonomy, uh, uh, the full political autonomy stuff in the book? Um, do the, so just picking up on the, the utilitarian and the assisted suicide 
uh, claim. Um, so imagine I'm a utilitarian. Um, does the public reason have to? Um, and and I can get you know, I can announce the public reason in making my public case for physician assisted suicide. Um, do I have to find the public reason at all com- compelling? I mean, can my can can my motivating reasons be strictly utilitarian? Is there any? Um, so if I if I support uh, uh, assisted suicide uh, for simply for straightforward utilitarian reasons, but know that what I'm talking in public, I has have to also at least give these um, public reasons. Um, does it matter if I find the public reasons kind of? Um, uh, you know, unpersuasive. I yeah, I think it does matter. Um, I mean, ideally, the the public reasons alone, the public reason justification you give should be sufficient for you. Um, so, this is sometimes is referred to a, a, a kind of a, a the, the sincerity requirement of, of the duty of civility. Um, and Micah Schwartzman is a very interesting article that defends this idea. So um, that that. Uh, so one way to think about it is that um, would, would I find this public reason justification sufficient to motivate my support for the political proposal, even if I didn't have the, you know, the comprehensive reasons um, already there? So even if I imagine myself as not like, say, I, uh, I didn't have the utilitarian argument, would the public reason justification still be one that I think is, you know, makes the case for the law? And if I if it's if I don't think it does, then I realize I'm I'm kind of being insincere. I'm I'm using the public reason stuff uh, more as rhetoric than um, as a sincere justification to my fellow citizens. Having said that, um, I I think that even being able to give a public reason justification is better than not like not being able to give a public reason. So so uh, so this is an ideal. <laughs> That we should strive to to achieve, but even if we fall short, I mean, maybe at least being giving some kind of public reason justification for a position is better than being not giving any at all. I see. I see. Good. So, um, so central to your defense of this, um, uh, you know, of of doing liberal political philosophy in a way that. Uh, requires us to theorize about public reasons and other kinds of reasons. Um, so central to your defense of that idea is the idea of uh, full political autonomy and uh, shared political autonomy. Uh, can you um, sort of pull the focus back and tell us sort of the the slightly bigger picture about why uh, getting right, you know, getting public reason right is an important part of understanding a liberal democratic society? Sure. So let me um, talk a bit about shared political autonomy. Um, so I've already mentioned institutional autonomy and, and, and justificatory autonomy. So institutional autonomy just has to do with, well, I shouldn't suggest it's very important, but um, has to do with the institutions that enable citizens you know, to, to participate politically. And justificatory autonomy has to do with the justifications uh, for the laws uh, to, uh, that um, citizens are subject to. Like, can good justifications be g- given uh, justifications that are acceptable to citizens, but I also think that that, that full political autonomy includes uh, shared autonomy. And I started thinking about this idea of shared autonomy um, because of a number of rather Rousseauian uh, descriptions of the idea of public reason that Rawls gives. So, just one example uh, from uh, Justice's Fairness, a restatement. Rawls writes: uh, Public reason is the form of reasoning appropriate to citizens who, as a corporate body, impose rules on one another by sanctions of state power. So that's just a, one passage from Rawls, but there's a number of, of passages very similar to this one um, in Rawls's writings on, on political liberalism and public reason. And they struck me uh, as very as all being quite Rousseauian in nature, and, um, and I mean that as a compliment. Uh, and, but I thought... Um, that's important to mention. <laughs> And I thought, um, can, but can we make sense of it? I mean, or are they, is, is he just being metaphorical here or is he just or, or in, engaging in some uncharacteristically um, uh, romantic uh, language? Um, but can, or can we make sense of it? And so I, I thought that we could make sense of it if um, Ross's references to corporate and collective agency. Uh, if we draw upon uh, Michael Bratman's theory of shared agency, 
Uh, and I call this the civic people account of political liberalism. And very roughly, I suggest that citizens attempting to realize the ideal of shared political autonomy in a pluralist society would commit themselves to what Bratman calls a shared policy to give weight only to public reasons in their decisions concerning fundamental political matters. And so this shared policy or shared policies in general um, are, are kinds of sh ongoing shared intentions. Um, so a shared intention might just be a one, you know, I, I intend, we, we intended to do this interview. So that's kind of a shared intention that we had. Uh, but when, when the, this interview is over, you know, that's the end of that share. You know, we, we've succeeded in fulfilling our intention or in our, we, we fulfilled our plan. Whereas policies are somewhat different and they have a more extended uh, duration. Um, and, they, and they concern our deliberations about things too. So shared policies, according to Bratman, constitute a commitment on the part of individuals in, in a group to structuring their shared deliberation and planning in, in a certain way. So just as a kind of a simple example you, um, that I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, I'm, I'm painfully familiar with, is being on a university hiring committee. So you have to, you, have, you, you know, you, you, you're trying to figure out how to hire a candidate for an open position. And usually what this involves, among other things, is coming with a set of criteria, right? So how much, you know, how much weight should we give to teaching? How much weight to research? Um, how, how much weight should we give to the letters of recommendation um, to, to pass service? Uh, and so these, and we adopt policies like, okay, we, we want to count, you know, research this much and service this much. And, and, and uh, these, this kind of research or this kind of service is especially important say, and we, uh, people on the hiring committee, we say, okay, yes, we all, agree with it, or we all agree to abide by this. Maybe I as an individual think, well, I actually would prefer a different ranking, but I come to agree that, okay, this is what we, this is, these are the shared policies that we all will abide by, right? And, and that kind of structures our deliberation. Um, uh, and, and so there's a kind of, you have a uh, kind of uh, a, sh a group, a group agent here, the, the hiring committee, and they've adopted um, a set of uh, shared policies for the deliberations uh, and so um, that's a kind of an everyday, an everyday example of what uh, of this of, of what a shared policy is and what a, what a shared agent is. So I, I try to argue in the book um, that a commitment on the part of reasonable citizens to employ public reasons when deciding fundamental political matters can be understood as an instance of such a shared policy of a that is a, as a kind of Bratmanian uh, shared policy. This shared policy constitutes the group in question as a self-governing civic people. And so I think that this, this view can render plausible Rawls's references to free and equal citizens as making up a collective or corporate body, when, and that public reasoning is the way to, that citizens do this. It can show why thinking of citizens as constituting a collective or corporate body doesn't commit us to anything metaphysically weird uh, or normatively, not, uh, con uh, normatively controversial. Since Bratman's account is... Um, aims at being reductionist in nature and, and naturalist and so forth. So he's not, uh, he's, you know, he's not Hegel. Um, and, uh, and so it's perfectly, it's, it's all kosher from the point of view of political liberalism, which wants to avoid controversial metaphysical commitments and so forth. Um, and so the idea of the, of a civic people, moreover, can, I think it helps illuminate um, the close connection between the ideals of public reason and uh, democratic self-government government. Uh, that is the relevant shared policy um, provides this kind of connection. Like, you know, citizens all commit themselves in this way and become uh, self-governing um, through this shared policy to, to public reasoning. This, of course, uh, so I'll just, I'm going to raise an objection to my own view just very quickly, uh, raise the question. Uh, well, you know, the uh, political society is a pretty big thing. <laughs> um, so it's not, you know, uh, you know, talking about shared, like, uh, uh, collective agents or shared agency and the shared policies when we're, when thinking about university hiring committees or, or, um, sports teams or, or, uh, you know, when people get together to paint a house and these kinds of situations, that's one thing. But what about, you know, a large scale political society? Well, so what I try to do in the book as well is try to explain how to scale up, uh, Bratman's account. Um, and the, and I think that we can do this, um, you know, it doesn't the, the 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 shared intention doesn't require that that 
uh, every single citizen have this ongoing policy foremost in their minds all the time, and that and that it, they are um, attentive to the interdependency of this shared intention as well. Rather, I think we can uh, think that well, uh, so long as um, you know, we, we, there's a way to to make sure that that uh, when political decisions are being made, uh, we can we can determine at least with some degree of confidence uh, whether the people making those decisions are using public reasons and thus adhering to the policy. And, and so I, I discussed this idea of the public political forum, which is from, you know, Rawls, this is Rawls's term, but it's sort of where the decisions actually are made. And it's where like public, re- public reasoning really come, comes out um, most, most vividly. These are sort of the, when, when votes are, are made in parliament or Congress uh, by legislators, um, when decisions are, are issued by a, a Supreme Court or constitutional court and so forth. And we can... Uh, look at these public records. See if public reasons are being used. Uh, we can look at the behavior of the of the officials in question, and we can decide uh, whether or not they're actually fulfill, adhering to this shared policy, right? Um, and likewise with citizens in general, we look at over you know our, uh, the public political culture and 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 overall voting behavior, um, whether or not they're they're um, adhering to this kind of shared policy. Now, I want to emphasize right away: this is an ideal that is not. Uh, to be, it's something to be aimed at. I don't claim I'm not giving a description of any existing liberal democratic society. Um, I don't. Uh, well, uh, so so uh, this is part of um, uh, this is part of the normative project of what what would a fully you know a fully legitimate um, f- fully uh, uh, po- a, 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 what would a society that that in which the ideal of public reason is fulfilled? What would that look like? And that's that's the account that I'm trying to give. Right. So let me pick up on that because, um, you know, one, I think familiar and uh, of, according to very many people, at least um, compelling line of criticism, um, even about um, uh, the very idea uh, of a distinction between public and non-public reasons, let alone uh, the kind of account you've just given, the civic people account of what role public reason plays uh, in a liberal democratic society. But a compelling line of reason of all that is that um, uh, any such Rawlsian view uh, is going to be doomed because of um, how many idealizations are involved, right? That this is... Um, uh, inevitably an instance of ideal theory and what's being called reasonable doesn't really uh, match any actual citizens uh, a way of thinking about things um, in some cases this kind of objection as I'm sure you know uh, gets um, cast as the the idea that um, reasonableness is just being defined uh, by um, you know, in terms of, you know, what some particularly positioned kind of person in society uh, finds agreeable. Um, can you say something about that sort of general line of critique and how you respond to it? You have a whole chapter on it. Yeah, so I have, uh, that's right, I do. I have a, the central, uh, the third chapter of the book, uh, which is the shortest chapter, um, uh, is on is on this uh, concern about ideal theory. And this, this actually chapter, um, it developed out of a paper that I gave at this conference. I think they, I mean, I know you were there. Um, oh, right. At, yeah, uh, Bowling, yeah, Bowling Green uh, State University. Right. I think that's what we might have first met. Yes, that's right. Um, yeah. right. So, uh, so this is the chapter is sort of the, the descendant of that, of that paper. I think hopefully it makes a bit more sense than the original, <laughs> the original <laughs> presentation did. But so there's this, uh, a line of criticism um, of uh, ideal theory Um and, and its connection to public reason. So there's what I would call the standard view of the relation between ideal theory and public reasoning. And this is, I think, the, nat- the, the, the view that, um, that, that uh, is natural to uh, attribute to Rawls uh, based on many things that he says. And it goes something like the following. Uh, first, we um, formulate a political conception of justice. Uh, and we do this with reference to an idea of um, what Rawls calls the well-ordered society, right? So this well, the well-ordered society is a society that fully realizes the conception of justice. And, and one feature of this well-ordered society is uh, the strict, uh, strict compliance by its members with the requirements of justice. And this, the, the well-ordered society, this fully just society, which citizens freely comply with, it, with um, 
is uh, Rawls describes as a kind of realistic utopia, right? So it's realistic. I mean, Rawls, uh, it, it, it's in, in that uh, Rawls takes seriously like the limitations of human nature, um, but it, but it's also what, what. So he's not. He thinks that justice can't ask people to do impossible things, or or even things that are um, would, would require them to sacrifice their fundamental interests or anything like that. Uh, but at the same time, it's the sort of the limit of what is po- politically possible. So it's utopian in that respect, but it's meant to be realistically utopian. Um, and then Rawls, then the view holds that, well, we want to formulate the conception of justice that way, then we can draw upon it, uh, you know, including um, public reasons can be drawn from this conception when trying to address uh, injustices in existing non-ideal societies, right? So when trying to figure out, you know, how to reform the healthcare system, uh, we think, um, you know, we, we use public reasons to, do, to provide justifications for the proposals that we have, but but we, you know, we these public reasons are are, are ultimately derived from conceptions of justice that that, that are formulated with reference to this um, notion of a, a just, well-ordered society. All right, so that's the structure of the standard view. Now, um, ideal theory um, has been subject to all kinds of criticisms. <laughs> over the last 15 years, as you know. Um, but I'll just mention two um, for the purpose of this discussion cause, and, cause I, and explain how I, I, I try to respond to it. Now, so I'll, I'll um, talk about criticisms advanced by my former mentor, uh, Elizabeth Anderson. Um, uh, and she, she criticizes the strict compliance um, assumption. She thinks it's unrealistic. And this is a, a criticism that others have advanced, certainly, like Amartya Sen and Gerald Gauss. Uh, and she also criti- also criticizes the, um, the 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 idea that this idea of a well-ordered society is a kind of perspective outside of the society we're in, right? So the problem with ideal theory is it adopts a perspective external to the political practices that it evaluate that it evaluates. Um, Sen also ha- uh, advances something like this criticism. He calls the view that Rawls has transcendental institutionalism, and and they argue that instead. Um, or certainly, uh, uh, Anderson argues that we should begin with the identification of problems or injustices within our practices. Uh, that as we find injustices, we're confronted with injustices in the society in which we live, and we should seek to ad- find solutions to them um, at the level of non-ideal theory. So non-ideal theory, which is the, the approach to thinking about justice that Anderson favors, begins with the diagnosis of the problems and complaints of our society, and investigates how to overcome them. And she has this interesting analogy with the practice of medicine. And this gives rise to the question, if ideal theory has all these problems, um, and I've just only mentioned two, can we have public reason, though, without it? And some people have suggested yes. Uh, I think uh, Gerald Gauss has, well, not not exactly Rawlsian public reason, but something like public reason, right? So mutual justification. So Gerald Gauss thinks we can. Elizabeth Anderson thinks we can, although, I mean, her idea of democratic equality has this kind of mutual justification element to it. Uh, Amartya Sen thinks we can. So you can sever, you can sever uh, the relation between something like public reasoning, you know, or an idea similar to it, um, and, and ideal theory. And I guess I argue that, um, in fact, these ideas are, there's a connection between them, and they're not as uh, necessarily easily severable as some people um, claim. And I kind of have this, this uh, um, I, I, I say, well, let's think about what it, what it is to, to make a political proposal uh, in non-ideal theory, right? So uh, something like what Anderson recommends, we're confronted with an injustice, we try to come up with a proposal to address it. Uh, well, what, what does that involve, coming up with a proposal to address it? Well, and, and if we also still want to be committed to something like public reason, that um, well, I argue that, well, part of a public reason justification for a political proposal is um, a claim that, 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 this, that this justification is going to be acceptable to um, other reasonable citizens. Uh, I mean, that's simply what it is, right, to satisfy, you know, this recipro- reciprocity condition, right? Uh, and so if that's the case, then what's the connection between the acceptability of a uh, justification for a law or a proposal and compliance with it? Well, I think that it makes sense to, um, that if someone finds a justification for a, for a law um, acceptable, compelling, um, that um, th- uh, they, th- they would also um, want to comp- 
comply with that um, uh, law, right? So if someone says, well, look, um, here's a justification for a law or a political proposal and, and say it's passed democratically through legitimate political processes, that would seem to give me, my, my acceptance of the justification would seem to give me um, sufficient reason, all things being equal, to comply with it, with it, that requirement. And so I, I suggest that, that uh, public reason justifications for particular political proposals involve what I call local ideal theorizing, that is thinking about an, amend, an, an amended basic structure um, in which the proposal is implemented and that if citizens find the justification for that proposal compelling or at least adequately um, acceptable to them, then that would give them a reason, all things being equal, to comply with it. And so we get compliance that way. And, and in terms of full-blown ideal theorizing, um, it seems natural, I think, that, you know, if I say I, I, like, I look at my society, I think, oh, much needs to be done in terms of improving its justice. Uh, I have a number of political proposals for improving the justice of my society. It seems natural to want to wonder, uh, to think, well, do these proposals all uh, fit together? <laughs> I, um and uh, do, they, do they make sense or, are they, or do they conflict or undermine one another? And so I might um, want to engage a kind of a deeper form, a broader form of reflection on, on these various commitments of mine. I might want to think about what, well, what underlying principles, you know, um, can explain the, these commitments. And, uh, and so once I start engaging in that kind of practice, um, I start doing what I call a, a full ideal theorizing. I start thinking about, well, what would a a fully just version of my society look like, you know? And, um, and again, all the proposals that, that I put forward though are ones that are given in terms of public reasons. So they're all concerned with um, acceptability. Um, and so the claim is, I mean, not, I don't, I don't claim that there's a necessary connection between local ideal theorizing and full ideal theorizing, but there's just a natural pressure. Uh, you know, if you, if you engage in a lot of, if you think about polit- your political commitments, well, I mean, maybe this is a, a vice that, that I have as a philosopher, but but I but I think that it's natural to want to you know to to want to make if you have a number of political commitments to want them to at least um, line up um, in a coherent way. So uh, so um, I think that at the end of this, pro- so we start with you know here's a particular injustice, here's a proposal to address that injustice. I want to give a, a, a pro- if I'm committed to this mutual justification process that that. Uh, uh, Anderson, Gauss, and so forth, they all, you know, they're all committed to it as well. Then I want to make the justifications I give for the proposal acceptable to others. That seems to entail a kind of uh, compliance um, uh, uh, feature. And, and then if I think, start thinking more and more about um, uh, uh, the various proposals that I, that I think justice requires, then I start getting something that, um, that looks like full ideal theorizing that gets us to the ideal theory picture, or at least close to it. So that's how I respond to the, the just, just mentioning the two criticisms that I, at the beginning, I think we get compliance and we also get a kind of the thinking about, um, you know, re, a realistic utopia again, but just through a different route. I mean, the other direction really. Yeah. You know, th- 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 I, I, I found this chapter really, really helpful um, because um, you know, my, my own thinking about the ideal, non-ideal theory stuff, um, you know, I, I, I always, you know, not knowing even, I guess, to this day, not knowing exactly where I stand on the issue, you know, I always thought that something was being claimed by the non-idealist, um, uh, something was being claimed about ideal theorizing by the non-idealist that I thought was, not fair to the ideal theory, well, to at least certain kinds of ideal theory, right? That um, there were more subtleties to um, the view, the various views about what ideal theory is and how it works and what it's supposed to get us than um, some of the real blunt uh, 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 criticisms, including, um, uh, you know, the, the, the Sen style criticisms. Um, so, you know, that chapter, I think, really... It, help me see at least one way in which um, the one way in which ideal theory could be understood as um, much more nuanced and responsive and sensitive to facts <laughs> uh, and all the rest. So, um, but um, I wanted to uh, make sure that we get to 
uh, talk about um, the the two chapters uh, at the end of your five chapter book. Um, and so, in the interest of, of time, I'm going to sort of collapse uh, 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 questions about them because they both kind of um, they, they they dovetail nicely. Um, so your your fourth chapter is about um, uh, children uh, in in uh, public reason liberalism. Uh, and the fifth chapter and the basic structure and what the basic structure uh, uh, um, encompasses, uh, particularly whether it encompasses, uh, you know, with families are part of the basic structure, an old Susan Oaken uh, theme. Um, and then your fifth chapter is about civic education. And uh, you want to claim that the political liberal can embrace a certain modified version of um, – uh, the non-domination view of 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 liberty. Um, you know, g- g- can you can you put those two together and 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 explain for us sort of uh, how those two discussions round out uh, the the civic people account? Sure. Uh, so yeah, the last two chapters, I guess, are the, sort of the applied part of the book, right? Um, and so I I advance a, an understanding of the of the basic structure that differs a bit from Rawls's. Um, and I think can overcome some of the criticisms of, of political liberalism that um, feminist uh, thinkers like Susan Okin have advanced, as well as engage with the question of like the, the place of children in, 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 um, and students in, in uh, liberalism. Uh, so my understanding of the basic structure, so, so the basic structure has always been this, you know, the primary subject of justice in Rawls's writings from theory of justice through political liberalism. That's never really changed. Um, and it, 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 some features of the basic structure are pretty obvious. So it includes the political constitution, you know, its various institutions, <coughs> excuse me, the uh, system of property rights and, um, and so forth. Um, and it doesn't, and there's some things that, that it never applied to and still doesn't, right? So, or at least not, um, are not considered fully part of the basic structure, like religious institutions, um, clubs, commu- um, cultural communities, things like that. Uh, that that uh, that that are you know we can call them voluntary associations. These are things you can join or leave, you, um, and and so they're not they're not part of the, the basic structure, at least not in the, um, not in a direct way. Now, where do families fall in? So uh, Rawls claims um, in various in various places, and he, in he and, and also in response to Oaken at one point that families are part of the basic structure. But they're part of the basic structure in a very funny way in that the principles of justice apply to families in much the same way they apply to voluntary associations, that is, as indirect constraints. So it's kind of, his ultimate treatment of families is, is, is a bit odd um, in that, that he, he sort of uh, recognizes the force of Oak, some of Oaken's points and says, well, no, no, families are, are, you know, are very important and they should be considered part of the basic structure. But when he talks about how they, uh, the principles of justice apply to the family, they seem to apply in, in pretty much the same way they apply to churches or they apply to, you know, um, universities or other kinds of institutions that are not directly part of the basic structure and that the principles of justice are act as indirect constraints. So, um, so for example, a church can be non-democratic, um, but, but it can't, uh, it's indirectly constrained in that it can't um, violate or constrain the democratic rights of its members, you know, within, with respect to the political institutions and so forth, right? And so um, families are similar in Rawls's view in that they can be organized in various ways as long as they don't constrain or undermine the rights that people have as citizens within the, within the um, broader society. Now, th- this was Oaken in her final writings on political liberalism was not ha- you know not satisfied with this response. Um, so what I try to do in the book is provide a kind of more nuanced account of the basic structure. And, and my view is that Instead of thinking about institutions as either belonging to the basic structure, you know, wholesale or not belonging to the basic structure, I think there are going to many many institutions have aspects that are directly regulated by the principles of justice, and I think families are are among them. There are going to be aspects of families that are directly shaped by the laws of society, by laws um, that is laws concerning divorce divorces, um, uh, policies concerning childcare. These, these uh, assumptions about work hours, these are all things that are part of the basic structure that directly impact the way in which families can be organized, right? 
So I think aspects of the family should be understood as directly subject to the principles of justice as part of the basic structure. And I think if we, we understand that um, families in this way, we can uh, incorporate within a political liberal framework many of the proposals that Oaken and other feminists have made for better realizing gender equality. So things like um, subsidized childcare, flexible working hours for parents, gender neutral parental leave, and so forth. These proposals all can be justified by public reasons um, and can be understood um, in, as uh, uh, concerning um, families, but those aspects of families that are that, that, that are part of the basic structure. Now, this leaves large parts of family life outside of the basic structure, of course, and, and rightfully so. That's what I think a liberal view has to do. And I, but I also think this view of the basic structure helps delineate the, the legitimate scope of parents' authority with respect to children. That is, what, so how much authority should parents have to raise children, in a, say, in accordance with their religious um, or other uh, worldviews? And uh, on the one hand, we want to, I, at least I think, um, there's actually a lively debate um, in philosophy about how much uh, uh, authority parents should have over, over children. But I think, uh, you know, a, a liberal view would hold that they should have a, a, a wide scope to um, uh, uh, raise their children, um, you know, in, in accordance with their um, comprehensive doctrines and conceptions of the good. good. But it needs to be limited nonetheless. Um, namely, uh, we need to ensure that children can become free and equal citizens um, once they reach adulthood. That is, that, that there's nothing, they're not impeded from becoming full-blown free and equal citizens, that is, becoming politically autonomous themselves, right? So an education that that stunted or prevented children from acquiring the skills and knowledge they need to become free and equal citizens, um, that should not be uh, uh, permitted. So there's a limited parental authority. Uh, Parents, uh, on my view, should be free to uh, live in accordance with their comprehensive doctrines, including in their relationships with their children, but they should should not be able to prevent their children from becoming uh, free and equal citizens. And so this connects, um, so this kind of division of labor uh, view that I provide here um, or advocate for that we can accommodate the fact to reasonable pluralism by providing parents and communities with room to live in accordance with their deepest values and beliefs while also demanding uh, that children, uh, as a matter of justice, uh, learn about their rights, freedoms, and duties as citizens. And so this connects up with the uh, Final chapter on uh, on citizenship education, where I argue that an adequate citizenship education should teach students the knowledge, skills, and concepts necessary for them to become rational, reasonable, and politically autonomous citizens. So they need to um, uh, learn, um, you know, uh, how, uh, about their rights and resources as citizens. So, so they know that as citizens, they they're free to choose, which you know what Rawls calls a conception of the good. They want to pursue. They 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 can they they ha, um, have the right to pursue a different conception of the good than their parents or the ones that they've been raised in, uh, and they need the resources to do this. Um, in addition, they should be taught how to um, act on uh, a sense of justice. They so they need to learn about the values, principles, and ideals that underlie liberal democracy, um, including the ideas of citizens as free and equal persons and societies, a fair system of social cooperation. They should learn about their what political rights they have, how to exercise them effectively. And they should also learn how to interact with others on the basis of uh, civic respect. And here the, the, the key element of civic respect is you know, justifying political positions regarding fundamental political matters with public reasons. So children should learn, students should learn how to um, engage with others in public reasoning. Um, to simple to, to put it simply, and this is necessary for them to become when uh, fully politically autonomous citizens as adults. And I, you know, in the book, I outline a pet, you know a pedag- pedagogic strategy for doing this, and, and I have some thoughts about um, the scope for say educational choice uh, within this framework. Uh, but the important point, though, is that I, I think that um, uh, that the, the view that, that I defend requires a kind of education for all for all students that ensures they're at least capable of becoming politically uh, autonomous um, persons as 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 citizens right and and so that's that's kind of the limit of of to, of toler, uh, of 
tolerating um, a reasonable pluralism. Like you can't, you, you know, you can't tolerate uh, practices that would impede the ability of students to become free and equal citizens. That's very good. Can I? So you know, we're 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 just about running out of time, and you've been very generous. But I wanted to. Um, and I thank you for that. But, uh, you know, can I, if I can just impose for, you know, ask you to reflect, you know, we usually don't think, and maybe this is an error, but, you know, in, as political philosophers, we don't turn to Rawlsian political liberalism as a critical tool <laughs> for, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, for evaluating our society, we usually look to other styles of political philosophy as um, modes of social critique. But it just struck me that um, uh, in the book, the, the 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 kind of account you give of civic education and what its purposes and you know what what latitude parents have, whatever, you know, sort of gives us an opening for thinking of the Rawlsian as sort of a pretty potent social critic given what uh, I'm sad to say is happening uh, in the country around um, public education, um, where it seems like there's a, um, a good number of citizens who think that um, public education um, is invalidated uh, whenever it does not, or is, is, is in some way invalid whenever it does not reinforce their particular um, conception of things. Uh, I don't know if their particular comprehensive doctrines is, is too lofty to put it. Um, but if public educators, kids are going to come home from public school saying things that sound unfamiliar to the parents, that that's a criticism of the public school system. And it looks as if you've worked out a way to say in a Rawlsian vocabulary, um, no, that's backwards. Is that right? I think that's exactly right. Yes. I mean, uh, I, I, we, we live in I mean, a, a very diverse pluralist society and citizens need to, I mean, this is a lot part of your work. Um, citizens need to, in order to maintain democracy, learn to interact with one another in respectful ways. And the, the, one, of the, one, one of the places you learn how to do that is are in schools. That's where you, I mean, that's where students first, in many cases, Start interacting with people from very different backgrounds, um, and right, and they they have those interactions outside of the view of their parents. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And that's and so it's not, that's not to be lament. I mean, lamented. So it's <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> so the parents shouldn't be um, upset that that students are learning about different worldviews or. Um, ways of living and so forth, <clears throat> they should welcome that because, I mean, in a way, students are going to find out about the, these these things eventually anyway, right, you know, as adults. And why not find it, uh, find, find out about uh, different um, worldviews, religions, ways of life in an educative, in a, in a, in a structured educational setting um, where, where norms of civic respect can be, um, you know, I- implemented or realized. Uh, that seems like a far better way than than learning, you know, about um, other ways of life on social media, for instance. Uh, <laughs> and and so so um, yeah, I mean, I'm really it is very disturbing what's happening uh, in in many states uh, now about people, um, uh, uh, parents in particular, protesting that their children might be exposed to you know ideas that they don't they personally don't like. I mean, that's just. I mean, so I, as a political liberal, I think that you should you should want that you should want that exposure, um, and uh, uh, and and especially if it's well structured, um, and, uh, and and respectful. And uh, so so yeah, so I guess I, I do think that it, that um, the 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 political liberal framework of thinking about education, you know, is would be you know it, it is a is a framework for uh, critically. Um, assessing a lot of uh, what's going on now. Yeah, because just one thought on this, because the the language of um, parental choice in these matters, which, you know, is, you know, potent in its own way, you know, anytime you're talking about people being able to make their own choices, it sounds like you're, you know, doing good liberalism. Um, but I guess that your account uh, enables us to say, well, but these are choices being made on behalf of another person who is a future citizen. And 
your view gives us sort of the language say, and those choices um, can't impede the your child's ability to become a you know a a a, a citizen in good standing normatively <laughs> uh, of uh, of our society. Is that right? Yes, that's exactly right. Well. Um, good. Blaine, um, you know, I want to thank you again uh, for um, joining us on New Books in Philosophy. It was, you know, really great um, uh, to read your book uh, and uh, to engage with, uh, with the ideas in it. So, you know, thanks. Oh, thank you, Bob. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Um, and um, thank you, listeners, for joining us uh, today for our discussion. Uh, I've been talking to Blaine Neufeld. Um, his book is titled Political, I'm sorry, his book is titled Public Reason and Political Autonomy. Um, it was just published by Routledge Press. Uh, you've been listening to New Books in Philosophy. Thanks and bye for now. <laughs>